Welcome, everyone, to a podcast on working with immigrant survivors of gender-based violence in their home countries, what social workers and domestic and sexual violence advocates can do. Today, we have with us Nassim Humanrad and Kristen Waslaw, and I'm Gail Pendleton. Um, Nassim has been working in the field of domestic and sexual violence for the last nine years. She's facilitated trainings and education to advocates, communities, youth, service providers, and stakeholders on the dynamics of domestic and sexual violence, technology stalking, teen dating violence, economic abuse, and financial literacy, and trauma-informed care. She has experience in counseling, crisis intervention, advocacy and safety planning, and obtained her BA in psychology at the University of Texas at Austin, her master in social work at Washington University in St. Louis, specializing in gender-based violence. She began working as a hotline advocate at the National Teen Dating Abuse Helpline and the National Domestic Violence Hotline in Austin, and has worked uh, in St. Louis, Missouri, and at the Ohio Domestic Violence Network, where she organized underserved communities in the state of Ohio to create access for survivors of domestic violence. She oversaw and managed the community education and training department at the Houston Area Women's Center and is now a social worker at the Tahira Justice Center in their Houston office, providing case management and supportive counseling to clients. Kristen Waslaw has worked in both the international and domestic realms in the areas of advocacy, capacity building, and project development, with specific experience in protracted displacement and community-serving child and adolescent populations. She has established and implemented community-based programs within low-resource, and challenging environments in the South American, East African, and United States context, and is well-versed in the urgent and long-term needs of forcibly displaced children, specifically unaccompanied minors. She brings a child-focused and trauma-informed expertise to her work, as well as a passion to ensure children's access to their rights. She received her Master's of Social Work degree from Boston College with a focus on forcibly displaced international populations. And I am Gail Pendleton, co-director of ASISA Immigration Assistance, which is one of the partner organizations for the Immigration Advocate Network. Um, I worked for 20 years at the National Immigration Project, the Lawyers Guild, and prior to that at Central Presente. So in the 80s, I had quite a bit of experience doing Central American Asylum and then worked in the 90s with other advocates on developing the gender-based asylum approach. When the Violence Against Women Act was passed in 1994, which we helped write and implement, shifted my emphasis to working with the domestic violence and sexual assault communities to develop partnership models to meet the holistic needs of survivors of domestic and sexual violence inside the United States. Um, some of the lessons I learned from that, which I, I believe that Nassim and Kristen are going to share with you in the, in the gender asylum context, are the importance of having a partnership model that meets the holistic needs and recognizing the power, dynamics, and privilege issues both between attorneys and advocates and the survivors and amongst the various service providers that are working with them. This uh, podcast is designed, as the title suggests, for those of you who are social workers and domestic and sexual violence advocates. It's in addition to a series of webinars that we did at CISA designed for those of you who already work with immigrant survivors of domestic and sexual violence in the United States but who may not be familiar with asylum. And that all of these materials are available through the Immigration Advocate Network and Assista Immigration Assistance. Just so you know what we're going to cover today, basically we're going to cover who we're talking about, where they're coming from, why they're coming, what happens when they come to the United States, and what you can do 
to help them. So we've discussed a little bit about your background, Nassim and Kristen. Um, tell us a little more about the work you're doing right now with these survivors. Thank you, Gail. This is Nassim, and as Gail mentioned, I am the Social Services Program Manager with Tahereh Justice Center. Tahereh is a national nonprofit organization that provides legal and social services to immigrant women and girls who have fled gender-based violence. So in my role, I provide case management and supportive counseling to clients, advocating on their behalf and connecting them with local community resources to meet their basic needs. And this is Kristen. I have a very similar role to Nassim. I think that one um, other piece to mention is that we are working on, you know, the capacity building aspect of preparing the community that um, the women and child population are arriving into. So ensuring legal, legal advocates are able, better able to work with this population, um, you know, education, the health realms, um, and just really trying to build strong community partnerships um, to, to receive this population. Do you need a lot of immigration law expertise to do this work? No, it really requires um, just you know, curiosity and um, recognizing that, you know, you're, you're aligning with another discipline um, that's working on behalf of, of clients. Um, it's, it's easy to pick up the terminology along the way. Um, I don't know, Nassim, do you have similar experience? Absolutely. I did not come with a background other than knowing about VAWA. Um, and so through this experience, I've been able to learn from the legal team and learn about the different types of relief that immigrants are eligible for, while at the same time they are learning from us, um, coming from a client-centered approach, trauma-informed, and bringing in the expertise around domestic and sexual violence. So it really creates a comprehensive, holistic approach to services. Who are these women and children you've been seeing? Well, the women and children that we've been seeing are primarily from the Central American um, Northern Triangle region. So that's uh, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, um, and it's you know a range of ages for ch with for the children and and mothers that are accompanying them. Um, I think that they're they're coming for a, a variety of of reasons. Um, which I know we can get into further. Um, it's you know it's all under you know the heading of, of violence. <laughs> People are fleeing different forms of violence. Um, you know, gender-based. Um, a lot of it is connected to the the gang warfare that's occurring in that region, um, and 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 people's lives have really been turned upside down for decades. Yeah, so tell us more about the gender violence you're hearing about. When we're, when we're looking at gender-based violence, um, it's everything from child sexual abuse, witnessing and experiencing domestic violence, sex and labor trafficking, kidnappings, and as Kristen mentioned, gang-related. Um, and so a, a lot of this violence is occurring in the homes with, with family members and partners, but a lot of it is also happening in their communities and in their neighborhoods. Um, and, and so we're, we're really seeing the spectrum of violence that is occurring with these individuals. Yes, and it's really, um, 
it's affecting all aspects of their life. Kids are unable to walk to school safely. People are unable to access their jobs. I mean, people are really cordoned off in their homes um, and, and afraid to leave. And that's no way to live. Why are they coming to the United States to flee that violence? They're they're coming for for protection and safety. Unfortunately, the reason many of them are fleeing is because there is no protection within their home countries and their communities. Um, governments, law enforcement, they're not able to provide the protection that these individuals need. And unfortunately, even when they are able and have the courage to go reach out for help, many times they are being told, we can't help you. Um, they're being told that you need to handle this on your own. Um, and, and therefore, they're running for their own lives. And I think that as we're just describing this, the population itself, to keep a really um, broad perspective uh, present and recognize that um, these stories are very similar to those of people of other parts of the world that are in, you know, the media. We we always, you know, hear about um, survivors of war in in other on other continents um, in, with relation to gender-based violence, and it's the same exact thing that's happening in Central America. Um, the you know, um, rape is a tool of war in in Honduras as it is in the Congo, and we have to recognize that that parallel and. And, and offer the same types of empathy and support. And what's their trip like to get to the United States from there? You know, they're, they're, for the most part, many of them um, are coming in a number of ways, um, walking over and crossing the border. Um, many of them are paying uh, coyotes who are individuals that are bringing families and individuals over and leading them across the border. Unfortunately, a lot of times with those coyotes, there's a lot of manipulation and coercion, um, many, many attempts and attacks of sexual assault with individuals um, from these coyotes or other individuals affiliated with the bringing over of individuals across the border. The other risk involved with their journey is further victimization through kidnappings, being held for ransom, um, and also being thrown into the strains of the labor and sex trafficking, uh, which we've seen a lot of cases of in the last few years, especially. So where are they actually coming into the United States? Well, um, they're coming in to a variety of places, but particularly um, we'll focus on the, uh, the Customs and Border Patrol points um, when people are arriving and they're detained by CBP. Um, it's, you know, that's their reception in the United States. They're received um, in a certain type of manner <laughs> by authorities um, and held and eventually brought on to the next the next stage in their processing is detention facilities, um, particularly two in Texas, um, Dilly and Carnes, and then one that is in the process of closing, I believe, in, in Pennsylvania. Um, so women and children are arriving um, and, and held together. And if, if boys are over a certain age, they're then um, placed in a separate holding, holding cell, essentially, um, from their mothers and their siblings. And then, of course, men over the age of 18 are separated from their families and put in adult detention. So the concept of keeping families together isn't necessarily present. 
And and another aspect of that is many individuals are being sent back into Mexico, um, which further increases their risk of revictimization, especially for the women and children. What is their experience, those who are detained, what is their experience like in the detention centers? Well, the detention facilities are essentially, you know, processing centers. It's a holding facility, but there you can draw comparisons to a prison. Um, very restricted movement, um, not a lot of access to comprehensive, you know, medical care, um, decent meals. Um, it's it's not pleasant. Um, and they're going through um, what they hope is a successful, you know, entering the legal process to to um, describe why why they're fleeing their countries and hopefully getting due process. And then um, according to, you know, certain um, reasons for for exiting the detention facility, they're, they're released um, with ankle monitors, some, um, and that's where they enter, enter the communities where we all are. And are they, are you able to get in and see them to help them with their trauma before they get out? No, unfortunately, um, social workers and other advocates are not able to access those detention centers. At this time, it's only been legal advocates um, and attorneys. We're doing amazing work. <laughs> so what happens when they are released and how are they getting to you? When they're initially released, it's really important to keep in mind that they're not, you know, accessing, you know, metropolitan cities um, and, and really welcoming environments. They're released um, in areas that are outside the detention facilities, which are quite a distance, but closest to San Antonio for Dilly and Austin, Texas for Carnes. And these are, you know, wide swaths of land and communities that aren't necessarily ready to to or prepared to work with these women and children when they're released. So really it's, you know, lack of, of any sort of financial resources, lack of reliable transportation, may or may not have access to shelter. Um, they're released with little to no trust in the systems around them. They don't know how to navigate systems. Um, they have no social support. Some do have do have family members or or friends within the rest of the country um, that they're hoping to to get to via trans you know a bus, um, but but many others do not. So we are hoping that those others are able to find the amazing workers in the community who can link them to to services. And that's one of the reasons uh, we're doing this is that we know that many of these women and kids are ending up in other parts of the United States without the kind of support that you all are providing. Yeah, and the, you know, the, some of the first points of contact they have are where, you know, churches, medical clinics, um, and possibly schools. Um, so those, those are the, the first responders for this population. And so, you know, once the release, that, that gives you a, a picture of the kinds of environment that they are working with and the, the lack that is present for them. Um, on, on meeting their basic needs. And so once they are in the community, there are additional barriers that are absolutely, um, they are without. And so some of those um, aspects include the hostile environment that they're going into. A lot of, um, a lot of the areas around these detention centers are rural. And so 
um, the context within immigrants and undocumented individuals coming in um, can can really be more threatening to them and, and even lead to further victimization. Many times they are afraid to ask for help or to ask questions. Um, and you're not only dealing with a language barrier, but you're also dealing with that lack of trust and the lack of knowledge of the environment that they've been put in. Um, for many of them, though they have left their home country and perhaps left their abusers, what we do know is how easy it is for many abusers to cross the border and come into the United States in search of their victims and, and their families. And so many times um, these individuals are not only fleeing the possible uh, perpetrators around them, but also the fear of their perpetrators from back home finding them. So that sounds a lot like the safety planning a lot of the folks listening to this may be familiar with. Um, are there other things you want to flag for the listeners and like, the expansive kind of safety planning you need to do with this population? Absolutely. And, and so safety planning, we're really looking at both the physical and the emotional safety of these individuals because for most of them, they are dealing with complex traumas. They have uh, experienced victimization as a child. Um, into adulthood, into crossing the border, maybe their experiences at CBP and in detention, uh, and, and then out into our communities, uh, whether that's from individuals or from systems. Um, and so it's really diving into what safety looks like and what are the dangers for those individuals. Um, and safety is not only linked to um, like I mentioned, the physical and the emotional, you add in the added piece of technology as well, which could make it very easy for past perpetrators to find um, their victims. It's probably also important to evaluate the safety of them even accessing some of the systems that normally you would expect survivors could trust, like law enforcement and other social services. Absolutely. Many, many of these individuals, especially from the countries that they are coming from, because of the lack of support from the law enforcement and government agencies in their countries, they come into our country um, without any trust of that, without even wanting to call 911 if they're in danger or seeking out law enforcement for assistance. And it's really important that we pay attention to that uh, because if they're not willing to work with those individuals, it's up to us to help break down some of those barriers and, and, and work around that, figure out other safety options for them and that they would be able to access to ensure their safety. And one, one piece of advice we always give folks is, is never send a non-citizen to a system without checking to make sure the system is going to be friendly to them first. Because the last thing you want is having them call ICE because your client showed up to get help. So mm -hmm. one of your roles is to make sure that that's not going to happen. Um, are there, I think a lot of the people listening to this may be familiar with the typical kind of obstacles and barriers survivors experience like the isolation and lack of economic support and the difficulty getting housing and, and transportation. Are there other things that you would want to flag for them that they should be aware of with this community? 
Well, yes, absolutely. They're seeing, um, they're already seeing these clients come through the door, this population. Um, but with, with, um, we're hoping that people will start to look a bit deeper and recognize the other layers, um, that are requiring kind of a, a stronger radar. Um, one that I will mention are, um, language barriers. So obviously, um, this population is Spanish speaking for the most part. And, um, while people may come in contact with Spanish speakers, otherwise, this this population may be um, have higher rates of illiteracy. Um, they're unable to 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 read the documents that are put in front of them. They're unable to understand the terminology that's used. Um, and there are you know particular dialects, and some of them Spanish is their second language. Um, so these are all flags to have. Um, when, when working with this population. Um, and then again, of course, um, recognizing that if someone is not able to provide documentation, um, there may be a reason behind that because oftentimes that's confiscated. Um, they, they have, you know, again, the fear of, of law enforcement as, as, you know, uh, local survivors do as well. But again, this is kind of a, a, an added layer. And, and something else to think about is, is power dynamics. And we know as service providers um, and professionals, there's a la- layer of power that we have over our clients. With this population, we, we want to take it a step further and recognizing that because of the intricate layers that these individuals are coming to us with and are dealing with, and especially if they've never worked with any kind of service providers before, that lens of power is much greater in their eyes. And so we want to be very mindful of how we are explaining our services, how we're providing information, um, making sure that we're client-centered, that they are the expert of their lives, and, and making sure that we're trauma-informed. And a layer of that is keeping the client informed so they can make a fully informed decision as they go through the process. Um, and that that will also help with creating your rapport. Um, with, this, with the power dynamics, something to keep in mind is that many of these individuals, because of the layers of victimization that they have experienced and the power that has been taken away in their lives by their perpetrators, um, they often don't feel empowered or able feel that they are able to raise their voice in what's important to them. So a part of our role is establishing healthy boundaries and rules. And so they are looking to us as models for that. And it seems like one of the things that you all do and those listening can really help with is, is just explaining how our system works and what our laws are and the terminology we use. We get so used to using phrases like domestic violence and sexual assault. We don't realize that if someone's coming from another country, they may have no idea what we're talking about or what a social worker is or what a shelter is or that it's illegal to, to rape your spouse in the United States. Absolutely. It's very, it's actually very common for there to be those gaps in knowledge around that because for many of them in their communities and their families and even their country, things like this, like domestic and sexual violence is the norm. And so we want to show them the other side that they don't need to live in fear and that they have every right to live um, and have healthy relationships. 
It sounds like you do work with the lawyers pretty closely. What is the role you play in helping them gain secure immigration status? Well, um, a lot of our work is building capacity on this uh, side for legal advocates to make sure that they are able to um, interact with this client population in a really um, client-centered manner. Um, so, you know, just addressing things such as, you know, the space in, in which you meet, the way the way you speak, um, remaining child-friendly. Um, and recognizing, too, that as, you know, as social workers and service providers, we are bringing in this other discipline and, and really trying to supplement and build build that legal advocacy to be even stronger because we have this opportunity now to kind of try to hit the reset button when it comes to the reception of, of, of this population because, of course, when they came to the border, they're, you know, they're, they're, they enter as a legal, um, through the, a legal lens. And, and when they meet with us, we have this opportunity to, to, um, to teach people how to view them through more of a, you know, a holistic and, and human-centered lens, um, that they, they have a lot more going on than just their legal case, you know, accessing very basic needs such as food and shelter. And so part of our role is making sure they have access to, to, to those um, services and working with community organizations, building partnerships. And really, um, just trying to to build a network on their behalf. And is there a role for um, domestic violence and sexual assault advocates who aren't part of the legal team? Is there some way they can help? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what's been really great that you know for um, our clients and our community here in Houston is that we've been working closely with a lot of the domestic and sexual assault programs. One being that so many of our clients are being served within those shelters. Um, so they're already being seen by our providers. And so we've been able to do a lot of cross training, um, and, and working especially with domestic violence counselors and mental health, um, professionals to assist with the legal case in terms of providing letters of support, which has been, um, which has been a great component and supplement to the client's legal case. Um, the, the other aspect is we are able to provide our expertise as domestic and sexual assault advocates on a grander, broader level. You know, when we're looking at gender-based violence, it's all the same root cause. And so if we're looking at it through that lens, we recognize that many of their needs are similar, just in individualized ways. And that's when the individualized safety planning comes in, the resource building, and as Kristen mentioned, shifting the perspective, shifting the dialogue on immigrants and why they're here, why they're fleeing their countries. So in terms of what suggestions you would have for the folks listening to this, in first of all, how can they find these folks who are living in the shadows in their community and, and reach out to them? Well, again, it's we mentioned the first point of contacts are oftentimes churches or, or medical clinics and possibly schools. So I think that um, those are kind of the, fir the first tier of services. And then in order to access you know, the, um, the, the counseling centers, the DV specialized services and legal organizations, um, those first responders really need to know that the others exist 
and really build strong connections. So it may fall on the part of the, the domestic violence organizations, um, advocacy organizations to, to reach out to that first line of response to make sure that that, you know, there's a line drawn, um, of connection for, for these clients, for this population. It's kind of two basic you know, outreach rules in general for these communities are, you know, you need to you need to go to where they are going to go, right? Which is why you're talking about churches, especially in schools. Mm-hmm. And the other piece is it they may already have developed a relationship of trust with people in those places like their pastor or their priest, is that that would be the quote unquote trusted messenger for then bring bringing you folks who are listening in to explain that you're there to help them and what you can do. Um, once they get to them, do you have some suggestions for questions they could ask to if they suspect that someone may be in this population? Yeah, well, I think that um, recognizing, you know, that if if they're not able to provide documentation, again, there may be a reason for that. It may have been confiscated. Um, you know, wonder, asking them, who, you know, who they arrived with, how did they arrive there, um, and if they happen to be wearing an ankle monitor, to know that's not due to criminal activity. Um, uh, language, uh, language would be a factor um, in in their ability to interact with the service provider. But if the service provider has, you know, a flag, you know, a radar to recognize that. Um, there may be more questions they should ask if someone's not speaking English. Um, and do you have anything else to add? Yeah, and, and something to look at, you know, is really preparing your agency. Um, like we mentioned, you're already seeing these individuals. They're already coming to you. You just may not know it yet, or you might not realize to what extent their experiences fit into this category. And so, um, you know, talking to your agency and, and, and service providers, how are we, how are we identifying these individuals? What kinds of questions do we need to be asking, including in our screening forms? Are there certain flags that we need to bring up and, and address um, with, with clients if we're seeing some of these things? And how are we being trauma-informed to meet the needs of these service seekers who are dealing with very complex traumas and high needs? Um, so being able to ask those questions both within your agency and within your community is a great start. And I think it really just shows the flexibility to a changing population demographic and having the ability to modify your agency's protocols is um, really being client-focused for this group. This is. I hope that those listening are finding this inspiring and helpful. Um, I wonder if you'd be willing to share in conclusion with the folks listening why you think they would find this work rewarding. Absolutely. I, you know, I, it's an honor to, to work with individuals and, and be a part of their journey, knowing, um, the, the great atrocities that they've been through, things that are unimaginable. Um, but they come in with such hope, with such light in their eyes. Um, and so to be able to be a part of that work with them and see them succeed, see them to get into a safe place in their lives is really rewarding for me. And I would say just to um, to know that you're part of a, a larger global community um, working to protect vulnerable populations and and really upholding your your um, 
your duty as a global citizen and, and remaining accountable to people who, who are seeking safety and recognizing that um, while we may have, have borders that are determined for us, um, we, we are able to still receive people with open arms. Terrific. So you're making social change on the individual, the, our country, and internationally. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, ladies, for sharing all of this. And we do encourage those of you listening to the podcast, if there's other topics or more in-depth that you think would be helpful for us to do for you, please let us know. Um, you can either contact me at ASISA um, or send a note to Ian when they send out the links for this, and we will try to accommodate your needs. Thanks for listening and all that you do. Yes, thank you for the time you spent learning more about this.